This makes no sense. Does this make any sense to you, Warrus? I'm desensed. Eric, what are you talking about? This dungeon. It's all finger paints and memory lanes. It's like a fever dream. Are we still in that hospital room loaded up with science drugs? I mean, I've still got that sexy sick boy voice. Dirk, we swore we'd never bring up what happened in that quarantine room ever again. You couldn't go 24 hours? I just don't understand what the crown is doing in this sketchy liquid ghost world. Where's the sconces? Where's the buttresses? The foyers? This isn't a dungeon. It's an art school dropout smelly sketchbook. Dirk, you do understand that they've used the access to, by all appearances, enter the dream world of their teammate, Mr. Isidoro. That's no dream world. I mean, objectively, yes, it is. Hmm, impossible. Where's Mayor Clownbear? Who? The mayor of Dreamville. Hello? He always greets you when you enter the city gates through Snooze Face Junction. And there's no banjo music. No, no, this is no dream. Just some weird nerd palace. Dirk... You realize people have vastly different dreams, right? They what? Wait, are you telling me that you have the same dream every single night? Oh, yeah. Shuffle into town, hug the clown bear, dance all night to the banjo jams, eat ham kebabs. The same comforting pageant every night. You know, dreams. That's it. That's your only dream. Why ruin dream. a good thing? What do you have against Mayor Clownbear? Did you vote for Dr. Panther? Classic Rusty. Always voting with his wallet. Dirk, nobody else has this dream. Most people either don't recall them or have vastly different visions play out while they sleep. Oh my gods. I, I, I can't believe it. My dreams rule ass, and everyone else is flipping channels like a bunch of imagination shufflers. <laughs> Dirk wins again. Good lords. Dirk, put that smug smile away, you olive loaf. The rest of us are going to check back in on the Fallow Crown to see if they can confront what dreams may indeed come, as they attempt to save their friend from himself. Stay tuned. Opus, The Living Tome the descendant of an all-knowing evil manuscript and beloved familiar to Iavos Isadora, lays on the ground in a grayscale dreamscape, looking up at you out-of-place travelers, flapping its pages eagerly, snapping open and closed. The harness that once held it in place on Iavos's belt is on the ground beside it, severed. It looks intentional. Oh, uh, Hal, I have an idea. I might be able to get it to tell us where Iovos is. Can I see it? Oh, I'm not picking it up. Go right ahead. Usha's going to walk over and say, Oh, hey, little guy. Scoop him up and lick him. It wiggles for a little bit when you first pick it up. It almost like snaps at your fingertips, but it doesn't hurt like teeth. And then it realizes, Ooh. recognizes you. It doesn't appreciate the moisture, but it has a well-made leather cover. I'm going to turn it around and look at the spine and just lick the spine. A very uncomfortable sound comes out of it. What are you doing to that poor thing? So when we was in those mines and I licked things, I got to see stuff. It didn't work this time. <laughs> the book wiggles out of your fingers and flops back onto the ground. Ooh. But when it lands, it lands with a blank page facing up. And as you look down at it in confusion, slowly 
liquid ink starts to form and the word lost is spelled out. Us too, friend. Il O is T lost. Iavos isn't here to go very good out. <laughs> Somewhere Iavos just feels the spider sense tingling. Gaspar is going to pick up the harness and see if it is salvageable. Oh, very much so. It was a simple construction from the get-go, but it's just very clearly been cut away, not just taken off. After tying off where it was cut, Gaspar is going to re-harness him? Re-leash uh, him? What would the term be? Bind him? No. Just tuck him away. But yeah. As you go to reach for him after fixing the harness, the letters forming the word lost sort of form a wet ink dollop that starts to drift across the page as though it's moving around looking for something. And it slowly shapes itself into an arrow pointing in a diagonal direction. It's a compass. That's your forte. That's true. All right. Uh, can I uh, promise I won't lick you this time, friend? Or maybe I will. You do have to pay Opus for his services. What does he take? Information. Oh. Um. Take the book and be like, uh, I, um. Uh, uh, I think it needs to be written. Oh. You might need to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Are we finding out you're not? (laughs) Okay. 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 It seems to vibrate eagerly. Gaspar is going to take out a small piece of parchment and with a very needle-like piece of charcoal, write down the coordinates of one of his, like, drop bags. His, um, Back on Abel? Uh, yeah. Well, or on the axis. Mm. Yeah. Just one of the many stashes that he has around. It sort of sniffs it confusedly as much as a book can. Um, the bookmark tongue pulls out and then kind of slides it in and one location for another is a hungry little guy. The arrow spins once and then lands pointing in the same direction. Well, should we follow it? Seems like the natural thing to do. Unless anyone has a bitter idea. Well, why, why are you all looking at me? Sometimes Ben, you have these, Wild plans, these ideas, uh, insight on what the hell is going on. Normally, when I feel lost, you do a pretty good job of giving me adding. That's just being a team. Well, that's fair. I'm just checking to see if you're still there. You seem to be blurry. She looks panicked, quickly taking stock of herself. You feel almost normal, more like you're inventorying a memory of what was once there, not actually feeling the firmness of your own bicep or the cool sheen of your armor, just thoughts that imitate them. I was just dissociating. I was staring in that direction at random. I'm sorry. Well, looks like we got the uh, best direction we're going to get. I'm going to hold the book out all the way at arm's length and follow where the arrow's going. The arrow seems almost warped sometimes, and you realize when you hold the book flat, it seems to point in the most true. Ah, it's a weird compass. That's how you hold a compass. No. <laughs> <laughs> Holding it like this the whole time. 
<laughs> just navigates oh, no. with a compass mounted on the wall. <laughs> it always points the way to the ocean. Down. <laughs> Very good. As you travel, guided by the blank ink arrows dancing across the page of Opus, you are guided with the one tool most needed to navigate dreams. Purpose. Against the backdrop of the colorless hills and cliffs and fields of gray flowers, after a time, you see a scene that is out of place. You see a woman. She carries both the beauty of age and the light of youth on her shoulders. Her warm brown eyes pierce you even from this great distance. A patchwork apron is wrapped tight around her strong waist, and her sleeves are rolled up over her elbows. Her strong arms end in soft hands that rest on her hips, with great patience, yet cocked to one side with a hint of mischief. Her hair is a waterfall of coffee browns with streaks of cream earned from decades of hard living. Controlled by what must be the most powerful magic in the form of a ribbon. Her cheeks are a seashell pink, and she taps her toe like she hears a song that no one else can hear. And you approach. She meets your gaze with half a smile and rolls her eyes as though she's slightly annoyed by the inevitability of this event. Bless my soul, children. The day is long and the sun grows heavy, and I've a meal to prepare. Be dears for me and fetch those damned chickens. The gates come off the coop, and I've too much work to do to chase them down. It shouldn't take long. There's one for each of you. Just call them by name and you'll be done in no time. And you notice now that there are chickens running around in this gray field, all a different palette of colors shining through against the black and white scenery. I would love you to tell me what this chicken's name is and then tell me about this chicken. What's its chicken story? <laughs> this chicken's name is Stuart or Stew for short. You don't like that one? <laughs> no, I'm okay with it. I just don't like what you're going to do to this chicken. <laughs> Stuart is a white chicken with a bunch of dapples of brown and red spotted across its back. It is particularly noisy among the chickens and more so than any of them has attracted the attention of things that like to eat chickens, what like foxes and raccoons and things like that, with its constant noisemaking. Very good. You call out for Stuart, and it pecks around for a little bit. It seems like it hears something that no one else hears and then runs to you in a panic and almost clamors up your peg leg. You find it in your arms, cooing. Oh, hello, Stuart. Who's next to track down a chicken? Hal sees uh, one. It's gray with black spots. I think that's a color chickens come in. Its name is Henrietta. Mm. Hal doesn't know how he knows this. And yet it's truth. So, so you just, it just seems right. Something inside of me said that its name had to be Hen something. It is the oldest of the bunch. It does not still lay eggs every day. It's sort of the long-suffering matron of the group that puts up with the younger chickens all bothering it all of the time. Mm. All right. Uh, you call out to Henrietta, and this wise old chicken does not waste time. It simply 
clucks a few loud clucks and the other chickens get out of its way as it hops towards you and just perches in front of you waiting to be picked up. It will not do the work for you. I pick up this chicken. It does that thing where its head doesn't move, but the rest of its body does (laughs) (laughs) as you balance this. It's surprisingly heavy bird. Gaspar is going to call out to Sadie, who is a very healthy chicken, a classical, pristine red wattle, and would be perfectly white feathers if not for her undercarriage kind of dragging through the gravel. Gaspar is going to pick up some stones and dirt and toss it back onto the ground as if it were feed. While calling out to Sadie. The old trickaroo, this big, chonky chicken comes wobbling over, almost shaking the earth in a tiny way as it comes, and looks down disappointedly at the stones and seems to peer up at you with a bit of malice in its eyes. But it's too late. I've grabbed the chicken. You've already got it. Up and up. It's like holding it like a football as it squirms. Old Scratch has lived a hard life. Her salt and pepper feathers, old, thin. She wasn't raised on this farm. She was found wild, brought in. She lived out there for who knows how long, missing an eye, her wings clipped, two toes missing as well. But she cautiously comes over when she's called, expecting something. Old Scratch almost seems to be squaring up, kicking her feet back as though preparing a charge before locking eyes with Pentecost and then simply moving up to you curiously. In protest to this, the fat chicken Sadie pops out an egg, (laughs) which is caught by the maternal figure before you. And she holds it to her chest warmly and smiles at all of you. I'm so proud of you all. You've done fine work and fast. Those old birds will think twice before running amok again. Now go wash up. Supper will be ready soon. And in a moment, she's gone. And the smell of a meal lingers distant in the air. The book snaps open and shut happily at this progress. The arrow turns to a liquid smear and then reshapes facing another direction. For a moment, I thought we were going to turn into deer. (laughs) Or chickens. Or eggs. I'd hatch. (laughs) (laughs) are the are the chickens still here everything about this scene is gone oh i was looking forward to washing that chicken got spots all over it (laughs) you once again set out following the strange direction the book leads you this seems like a long voyage as much as time seems forgotten you feel weariness your knees are sore the road has been difficult And then in the distance, you see a city. And as you drift to approach it, you are at the city wall. You can hear the hustle and bustle of an open market beyond the closed gate. Featureless travelers line up to enter, toting wagons full of indescribable wares. One person stands out beyond the others. A young man leaned up against the wall with a wide-brimmed hat and a yellow scarf flapping in the wind. His half-cloak pulled around him, as he tosses a coin between his fingers. A small table is set up before him. As he sees you approach, his face ignites in a smile. Sun-baked freckles seem to slide back as his piercing blue eyes gaze up at you. 
Hello and welcome, travelers. Sun may be high as our shadows cower in our wake. And the market lords have chosen closed doors for today's proceedings. But we are together, so it must be fate. The coin appears in his other hand, and then he duplicates it into four more, one between each finger. I wager you five to one odds. You can't find the white stone under my cups. And ten to one, as five more appear, that my riddle leaves you guessing. Answer unknown. Shall we play a game? He closes his hands and the coins disappear, and three cups emerge from his cloak. You bet you're wrong. We're going to play a game. It is agreed, then. He begins moving the cup slowly, one after the other, each time setting it on top of this perfect white stone. And then they begin rotating and moving. This soldier stands at attention at all times. He does a flip in the cup, tosses the stone into another one, goes behind his back, slams him back down. He carries four arms to war. Sharp spears. He begins sliding the cups around and you can hear the stone rattling in all three at once. He is stolen, displayed, and married. He leaves them perfectly still, tapping each of them like tiny drum sets. His brother is round and his sister is deadly. He fears nothing. But no matter what you do, he will not have soup for dinner. And he opens his hands before you as the three cups remain. I'm going to have all of you roll a perception check to perceive his trickery of the cups. Fuck. (laughs) All right. Who else rolled an 11? (laughs) It's an eight. Uh, One. After modifiers. I got a proud, powerful seven. Wow. Excellent. Hal did the best. What was your total? (laughs) 11. Nice. Penn's attention is not on the cups at all as she breaks into the first earnest laugh that she's had since being here. (laughs) It's a fork. Your laugh is echoed as the brother begins a huge belly laugh. (laughs) Uh, A fork indeed, he says, slapping five gold coins down onto the table. And yet the cups still remain a mystery. You're so good at this. I like riddles. Wait, he already told the riddle? (laughs) Okay. Gasper. Huddle? Yes. I have an idea. We got a tool at our disposal. What are we writing the book so the arrow points at the cup? What got the rock in it? What does the book say? You gonna help us game the system there? (laughs) The book simply writes out the word mystery. Oh, you know it's a mystery. That's why I'm asking you. I wasn't watching the stones as much as I was the person. Can I make a sleight of hand check to try and reconstruct how I would have cheated this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, please roll me a sleight of hand check, and you can use any of your mental stats in place, too, if you'd rather. Okay. It's a 21. <laughs> Now, this person, you have seen many individuals with talented fingers in the arts of tricking people, uh, creating false illusions and winning at these kind of gambling games. You lost track of what this person did with the stone. They are a master beyond anything you've seen in the poor streets of Abel. But you do have an old remedy for winning these kinds of competitions. 
you're sure he's in control of the stone, but you can't tell which cup it's under. So you rely on an old trick you were taught by a friend in the streets. And you put your hand on one of the cups. And uh, he says, is that your choice? And in response, as you've been taught, you say, it must be this cup. You lift up one and say, because it's not this cup. And you lift up the other and say, because it's not this cup. The only other option is that it's under that cup. Or he's cheating. Yes. And at that, he laughs and laughs. <laughs> I like you lot very much. And as he claps his hands together in celebration, the table, the coins, the cups, and the city vanish. Oh. So we don't get to go to town then. That was lovely. I wish I could feel the happiness. You look down to the book, and it seems to be pointing behind you where you've already come from. And as you turn, it's an all-new path. And in no time, you're back on the road, face down, following the liquid black arrow, taking you in an ever-changing direction. There have been nothing but clouds in the sky up until this point, but before long, you realize it has grown dark. The charcoal smears stretch from the horizon to the horizon, painting a kind of false night into the heavens above. And then, there are the trees. Tall. Dark. Familiar? Ominous all the same. Shit. The sound of a heavy thud echoes through the forest. And then another. And another. It sounds powerful. Each new thud echoes out with a symphony of cracking and moaning. And tragically, the arrow directs you towards the noise. You come to a clearing where you see a dark, tall figure with their back to you. Broad shoulders, sweat-soaked work shirt, hanging suspenders and matted hair. An old mare is hitched to a wagon in the clearing near them. His bare arms sport cuts and bruises like stars on an astral map. He throws his great weight back again, revealing the gleaming axe head and thick handle that he swings. And with another booming thud, he drives it into the side of a tree, where it remains. And he places his hand against it, supporting his weight, panting. <sighs> I'm too tired. Too old for this. These damn trees are too strong. But I can't return without wood. The nights grow cold. Please, my friends, help an old man care for his family. Knowing that books burn really easily, I'm going to hide Opus a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you've hefted an axe before. Oh, you could help there. Pass it off. Let's see what I can do. He gestures to the handle sticking out of the tree. It's embedded deep. Go ahead and give me an athletics check. Come here, little axe. Herg. 17. The most effort is used in pulling it out of the bark. And swinging it as well as you know to swing an axe, you strike into it, and this tree feels like no tree you've ever struck before. It might as well be wearing thick steel armor. But you do not stop. You are strong of back and hard of work. And you swing with a thud, and then another. And you make it almost halfway through before you're exhausted. And the work is left unfinished, but progress has been made. Ooh. Uh, Al, you, uh, you want to take a go at this? Yeah, I could give it a wick. Take a couple steps back. I will, uh, I'll go from the other direction and try and meet in the middle. Okay. Wait, let me see that axe. Is it sharp? It was probably sharp when the work began. 
It is it is shown its hard work. The blade is probably rolled in a couple spots. May I hone the axe? Of course. You can make short work of it with a well-made whetstone and simply carve off some of the chips, narrow it down a bit, and get it to a nice clean point again. Maintaining your tools is important. You get a large, almost imposing hand pressed on your shoulder in a nod of approval. Usha as well. He hands you a rag from his pocket to mop your brow. I hand it back a very wet rag. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Will. I've always been pretty good at brute force too, so let's give that a whirl. I roll a natural one, Law. Okay. Now, there's only so many ways you can fail at chopping it on a tree. That's true. Most of the work has been done. The axe is sharp. But you do manage to break it. The blade is strong, but the handle is old. Recovered wood. The strength of your blow, though, is enough to start a crack. And the tree begins to tilt. And then you all realize the poor choice of impact spot has made it so that the only logical path where this tree can fall is onto the wagon and old mare. You must act quickly. Wuxia is going to do the best he can to throw Ebb, his magic spear, into it, try to manifest his chain and pull it enough so it'll miss, if not graze the wagon slightly. Okay, let's see one more athletics check. Come on. Does anyone else want to grab the chain? I was going to say, Hal can rage and try and push the same direction that Wuxia's, or I guess opposite so that he's pushing in the direction that Wuxia's pulling. You're acting quick. You can grab out at the chain, but you have no time to flank the tree. Okay. All right. I'll grab the chain then. I have acrobatics and mountain, mounted combatant. Mm. I, f- I would like to sprint towards the mare and see if I can get that, get it moving. Absolutely. So that the graze turns into a full miss. All right. Let's see an athletics with advantage from Wusha and an animal handling from Gaspar. Sick. Oh, the best thing. That is a 16 for animal handling. And an 18 for athletics. All right. There are some logs sticking out of the back of the wagon. The horse races forward as the trajectory of the falling trees shifted just slightly through the strong yanks of both Hal and Wusha. And some of the logs are knocked out of the back, missing the body of the wagon by mere centimeters. But the tree falls, defeated, and ready to be chopped into firewood. (sighs) You have my thanks. Now, I know you're busy. Take care of yourselves out on the road. And with that, the trees vanish, melting away like oil into the earth. The night sky cracks open, but there are no clouds. Those windows are too far behind you now. You're too deep. The arrow on the page dances wildly and confused. You look in all directions, seeking clues as to where you should next go. And your eyes lock onto another strange scene on the horizon. A bookshelf tipped over in a field. There's a young girl next to it, struggling to put it upright. She wears a tall-necked, thick robin's egg dress that hangs down to her knees. It has large pockets in the front, a small cloth apron tied around her waist, with various objects stuffed into the pockets and pouches of the belt. She looks up to you with large spectacles, reflecting honey-brown eyes, framed with two long brandywine braids. She wipes her nose with the back of her hand, leaving some ink on her cheek. Well, are you going to help me? Just because you're dreaming doesn't mean you have to stand around and watch there. Of course. Of course I'll help you. Thank you. 
You help the girl write the bookshelf back up. She looks down at the mess it has made. My books have fallen and gotten all mixed up. Well, I'd put them back together, but it's like a puzzle. So I guess you have to solve it, don't you? Even though it's super easy. He's waiting for you, you know. Well, kind of. But don't just stand there. My books. And despite the size of the shelf, there are only six books scattered across the ground, with very strange titles. It seems like you need to put them back in the right order. The titles are Never Kiss a Vampire, My Friend Ogre Joe, A Goblin Stole My Pie, Date with a Dryad, Wraith at the Window, and Dance of the Demulich. George R. R. Martin's really struggling for titles. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Ooh, nothing wears out body and mind like a friend helping you with a good hard tug. I'd put these in order of danger. Ooh, I like that. Though, uh, my arms are noodly and tired, I'll help pick up books. Just tell me where to put them. So do you have any guesses as to the order they might go in? Uh, what color are the covers? Is Do you think they go in Roy G. Biv order? Ooh, color's good. How thick is each of the books? They all seem like they're short stories, possibly meant for a younger audience, and they have various shades of faded leather brown, all bound by things you would find on a simple farm, mostly hide. So they're already part of a matching set. Mm, I think we should uh, stack them hide to low. I see what you did there. What if... What? Right. So we seen a uh, uh, mother, we seen father we seen siblings what if it's about date which one was written first mm. no no we didn't see we didn't see family in that order never mind i'm wrong okay okay so this is a set and it's meant for children what you would need to learn would be the fundamentals of how to defeat something that you would maybe be able to handle so we go from least dangerous to most. We put the goblin first, then the dryad, then the ogre, then the wraith, vampire, and Demilich. Gaspar showing you his ideas in motion, placing the books on the shelf as he describes his thought process. The moment you place the sixth book, the bookshelf seems completely full, stacked side to side with tomes of knowledge. And the little girl appears standing next to it with her hands on her hips. I told you it was easy. Certainly took you long enough. Anyway, you've got to get going. You've got my blessing, don't worry. Uh, and everyone else's. Um, you'll probably see that later. Uh, but you have to hurry. Uh, if you don't all wake up soon, you might be stuck here forever. And she points her ink-stained finger outwards towards the horizon. No more needing to guess where you need to go. The path is clear. A dark silhouette stands towering in the distance. A willow tree with branches dusting the landscape. A void of shadows seems to emanate from it. I'm afraid that's where you have to go next. You've been in dreams and memories up to this point, but if you want to go where it matters, you have to go through that place. The place where nightmares live. Thank you.
Welcome back to EXPN, home of the LUQ and realm of the Dirkmeister. Here with me in the Dirk Zone is... Rusty? Rusty, your eyes are leaking. Did you eat extra spicy noodles again from that soup shack? They're still repainting the bathroom after last time. No, I'm fine. Just got a little caught up in the emotional symbolism and love languages on display during this quest. You heartless jerk. Hey, whoa! I've got hearts coming out my ears. I'm sure I'd be just as sad if I had any idea what was going on. All this talking and puzzle solving makes my brain want to visit Mayor Clownbear for a midday getaway. <clears throat> well, not all challenges need to be solved with spell and sword. Right, the lame ones. Oh no, I lost my food birds. Oh, my books are dirty. I have a gambling problem. Lame. I'm more interested in this gum on my shoe. How did it get there? Where's it been? What flavor was it? Yes, Dirk, nobody is surprised that your empathy pond is a little shallow. Can we just get back to it? Hang on. I think I've made a breakthrough. Excuse me? Uh, the gum? I broke it off my shoe. <sighs> oh, yeah. That cinnamon. Maybe walnut. That's repulsive. You think? Only one way to know for sure. Sure smells like it has some flavor in the bag. I'd like to cut to a commercial before Dirk's gum experiment makes me lose my lunch. Fear not, Rusty. Wasn't gum after all. Just some harmless orc boogers. <laughs> Mystery solved. We did good work here today. No, no, we didn't. We're about to witness a planar phenomenon, a keyhole between worlds that only marketing can penetrate. Join me as we glimpse into the adverse. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Hey there, Bornrick Xbreaker here, and welcome back to Gitter Dungeon, the show where I show you how to take good care of your beloved crypt, temple, tomb, or etc. Now, we got a lot of dungeon owners here in Mackinac, and the market values have been going up a lot in the last few decades. Today, we're gonna give you a few tips on how to make your dungeon stand out above the rest, by avoiding what we call dungeon cliches. First of all, let's talk about names. Sure, the Halls of Torment or the Eternal Crypt of Madness sounds pretty cool and it'll probably sell a book or two, but if you name your dungeon something like that, the only visitors you're gonna get are big salty adventurers looking to stick their nose where it don't belong. If you want to get the local merchants and town folks to come check out your sweet setup, and maybe fall prey to the dangers we've built together, and give it a nice welcoming name, like the Gallery of Elegance, or the Home of Empathy. And those are nice inviting names that'll really pull you in and help you wind up as food for our hungry monsters. 
Another cliche to avoid is a spiked pit trap. Uh, now hear me out, I love me a good 20-foot fall on the razor-sharp spears, and floor traps definitely help you stay organized when collecting corpses, uh, but the spears themselves won't impress anyone. Uh, spike traps are like a drag a dozen. Now if you want them to fall into something they'll remember for the rest of their lives, yeah, fill that 20-foot hole with wolf diarrhea. And they'll figure out what it is, and the psychological damage will be much more satisfying than any falling damage. And they'll be talking about it for years. And if you don't know where to find a wolf diarrhea, I do know a guy. And last but not least, let's talk about what some people call the dungeon boss. And this is usually the manager that you've hired to maintain the quality and efficiency of your dungeon while you're seeking new riches or enacting dark rituals. And they always get tucked away in the back room, and they're always some big scary thing, like a minotaur or a demon or a golem or something like that. And I say, instead of putting a few bugbears in this room and a few skeletons in that room, eh, put a big scary monster in every room. But only have one of them be in charge, and don't tell them who it is. <laughs> It'll keep them competitive and really throw off the adventuring party. If they see the same room two or three times in a row, they'll think they're losing their teacups. Oh, and instead of hoarding gold, uh, maybe just go to a bank, instead of hiding it in chests and behind secret magical tapestries. And no loot, no problem. And join me next week for another episode of Gitter Dungeon, brought to you by the Nexus Enterprise. Hey, all you cuties! My neck, my back, my mid-roll, and this track. Here's a list of cool things. D&D battle maps, monster stat blocks, magic items, concept art, game rules, custom character sheets, bonus audio, exclusive Discord channels, character creation for the show's meta, getting your name mentioned in the mid-roll with your legendary team, these all sound pretty great, right? Well, they're waiting for you at the LUQ Patreon. Visit the LUQ.com for links to that, actors' bios, photos from behind the scenes, merch, and more. Speaking of legendary teams, our current legendary teams are the Titans Rise, the Twilight Concord, and this week's featured team, the Ceaseless Horde, with Dave Blodnoff, Daniel Pickens-Jones, Patch Perryman, and Jeff Ammons. To get a personal message read on the show or possible advertising opportunities, reach out to admin at slapdashstudios.com. Follow us at twitch.tv forward slash slapdash streams for Monday Night Live premieres hosted by Mistress Dana, Pokemon Soul Link Nuzlocks, Pen Pals, and so much more. If you've been waiting to mail us something until we got a new P.O. Box, rest assured that we are working on it. In the meantime, you're welcome to send things to Slapdash Studios at 2511 Southeast Pine Street, Portland, Oregon, 97214. If you're on the Discord, let us know to keep our eyes out. Some of the things we've gotten in the past really blew our minds. We love to share those things on social media. Well, that and fan art. Don't believe me? Just try. But that's enough out of me, let's get you back to the battle axes. We've just reinvented the kiss with our new long-lasting moisturizing lipstick that guarantees all-day vibrant colors. Drive them crazy with desire until they realize yours is the mouth of destruction. Our advanced lip-boosting product is loaded with necrotic energy, ready to feast on whoever is foolish enough to get within range of your smooches. Show no mercy. Kiss them and watch them die. Look them in the eyes as you snuff out their existence forever. Send them into a world of anguish, all because they were foolish enough to seek your affection. And while they melt away, your color won't. Choose between ten shades and four flavors. But you don't get to pick your poison. That's all the same. Powerful and instantaneous. New. Apocalypse. Instant Kill Lipstick by Chanel Divinity. 
There's nothing past first base. The thought of entering the darkness is spoken. And simple as movements of a dream, it becomes real. You are battered and entangled in the dark willow branches. The emptiness surrounds you and becomes you. You are ripped from the place of dreams and memories and flung violently into the void, the place where nightmares live. You are going to find yourselves experiencing the greatest fears Iavos has faced since his awakening in a new world, in a new time. We're going to enter a saving throw challenge. Ooh. Nasty. Each fear will be presented to you. Describe to me what save you would like to make to overcome this fear and be vivid with your telling in finding the strength to overcome it. These are not wins versus losses. You either pass or fail, but each failure will change the world of dreams you have yet to visit. Gaspar, everything has been silent and cold for a long time until it is broken by pain. The agony of atrophy. Opening your eyes is one of the hardest things you've ever achieved. Rising to your feet, Herculean in greatness. The first thing that you witness is a mirror, a reflection of yourself. But your body is wasted away. There's barely anything left of it. All of your youth lost. The vibrance of your young adult life cast aside. How do you face this terror? Gaspar turns back to one of the first times he realized that the world that he lived in was constructed. At the end of the day, the prison that he had lived in for so long did not have bars. He was just told that they existed. I would like to use what is natural for dispelling illusions. I know of my youth and vibrance. I don't trust this mirror. I would like to make an intelligence saving throw. Let's see it. That is a 23. (laughs) Your calculating mind holds on to the fact that old or young, this body, this world, it's in the control of greater beings. What's lost age? This could be a new beginning. It can't be real. It's too terrible. You just have to wait and see until you're dealt a new hand. Pentecost. Your hands are covered in dirt. Your back is tired. You've been digging. Blood under your nails. Unearthing forgotten relics from a long time ago. But you're not alone in this forest clearing. You hear the trickling of the nearby stream behind you and the clanking of armor. And you turn and face a twisted, horrific knight, donned in black plate, his limbs like liquid, moving with too many joints, a cruel blade humming with white energy. The man you killed with laughter. How do you face this fear? Pentecost instinctively reaches where she's used to reaching, to her concept, to her force of self. But it's not there. 
It slips through her fingers like smoke in this place. So she looks to this creature, knowing that she can't beat it with her strength or her endurance. No, it was a riddle that slew this beast this night. So she's going to make a wisdom-saving throw to navigate its riddles. Very good. Sixteen. You faced this fear before. You've worked past the conflict of guilt involved in the spell that set his mind free. It was his own actions that brought the blade to his throat. But this foe still knows how to kill you. You flee this place, but the memory of his power still clings to you, knowing he's out there waiting. Halifon. The smell of blood makes you gag. A combination of chemical and rot. The stone earth below your feet is cold and wet. Something written in blood. And the lumbering mass of corpses stitched together with necrotic magic towers over you, the face of every lost wing cot, staring down at the thing keeping their master from its goal. And the great uncle, lifting back corpses of an arm, begins to strike down at you. How do you face this terror? The first time that we fought the great uncle, Hal went toe-to-toe with it while Iavos unstitched it. He unmade it using his magic. Without Iavos here, Hal isn't sure if he can beat it on his own. And there's a moment of doubt as Hal questions whether Iavos is more useful to the team than Hal really gives him credit for. But alone, facing this creature, he remembers when he fought it the first time, I hurt this thing. And I've gotten stronger too. And as it brings its fist down, Hal's going to do exactly what he did the first time and catch its fist in mine and stop the blow and throw it backwards. I'd like to make a strength saving throw. Please do. 14. You remember as a team besting the great uncle in combat, or at least the vessel that he inhabited. You walked away from the battle victorious, but you know somewhere in this mansion, the cycle must still be going. Some new victim must come and learn those secrets. The uncle himself was just a new beginning. And you may not have seen the last of the Wincots. Or their eternal vengeful spirit. Wusha. You are in an alien landscape unlike any you have seen before. Strange dome-like buildings seem to hover over caves, digging deep into the earth, echoing with subterranean wind and the screeching of bats. People are running in terror all around you, exploding into vacuums of blood that suck upward into the sky. And as you look, a burning sunlight eye stares down at the city, and blood-red tentacles reach down at its victims. 
How do you face this terror? Wuxia sees the hungry eye up above beginning to consume this red mist, beginning, beginning to consume people. He knows that sometimes, sometimes to dodge cannon fire, to stay away from the whips and scorns of your enemy, you need to go below. So he is going to try to suck harder and is going to try to suck up all of the people into his increased and enlarged form here Ooh. with a constitution save. <laughs> really taking advantage of the dream scenario. I like it. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to suck harder. <laughs> I'm going to outsuck this sky god. <laughs> I suck idiot. more than anyone. <laughs> Come on, baby. Baby gives a 16. 16. You never got to see the scry where the fallow crown did battle with the sky god. You think you heard someone talk about it at a bar, but you don't recall them vanquishing the foe. There was a banishment. And for all you know, this entity somewhere even closer than it ever was, waiting to tear the sky apart and feed on the earth. Gaspar, a familiar smell, strikes your perfect intact nose. There is a truth written on a page, hanging from the ceiling. The page is ripped in half. One side says life, and one side says death. And a strange man made of paper, a warrior, a scholar, scribbles into an ancient giant book with a spear-like pen. In the distance you can hear the voices of souls being ripped from their bodies and stitched into old tomes. Lives unfinished, the documentation of their agony. The truth that in this domain, the book knows everything. How do you face this terror? Gaspar is staring at another being that has control over so many others. It is their profession to process what is the culmination of mortal lives. Very much like the being that had decided and enacted an unknowable justice upon Gaspar, it strikes fear into his heart. While combat itself is just another day in the job for Gaspar, when it truly comes to what the fate of his soul is, there is no deception that Gaspar can muster to hide true fear. But in this very moment, he will accept that he is afraid, but still step forward towards the book. I would like to make a wisdom saving throw. Please do. Minus one. That is an 11. One of the pages drifts down from the ceiling, the one that spells out death. And like a fine vellum, as it drifts downward, in its surface you can see a reflection. Reflection of yourself. For a moment, you saw your face. Forgotten. But there you are. Headless. An agent of the afterlife. A collector of souls. You are up to your waist in cold water. The spring water of your ancestral home. A waterfall cascades down tragically. But the sight and smell of it 
is lost to you because a towering black tree living with rage and vengeance hovers over you its branches like a canopy of your own cage the smell of acid stinging in open wounds and your friends fallen bleeding out and the sound of songs you heard in your childhood poems whispering from the knots no no i beat you i beat you pen initially looks enraged and then crestfallen and a whole myriad of emotion crosses her face okay i'm different now i'm stronger but not here i don't have my strength here but i've grown let's see what i can do instead of being flighty dodgy like a past self may have been this Pentecost is going to make a constitution saving throw to stand toe to toe with the tree. Excellent. Let's see it. 17. Ooh, yes. Very good. The version of you that you once were managed to defeat this tree, but not by itself. You weren't strong enough alone. But this new form? There is a hunger in your blade that the thickness of wood cannot turn back. You are a hunter, and sometimes even plants are prey. Hal, you stand like an exhibit in a museum of war. Sandstone walls rise upward into a point. An inverse pyramid. Paintings of great gods in battle, etched in blues and reds. But the light that should be cascading from the point is blocked as a silhouette descends downward on angelic wings. Thick silver armor, gleaming solar blade, hair burning like fire. Your family has come once again to claim you. Your aunt has returned stronger than before. How do you face this terror? I've been there. Again, not as a child, not, not as a kid, but as a combatant, a warrior, a warrior stronger than she is. And I left. I came back here. This is where Hal has chosen to be. And perhaps one day my time will return me there. But not right now. She has no authority to tell me where to be. And I choose to remain a member of the Fallow Crown. And I'd like to make a charisma save. That's exactly what I would have asked for had you prompted me. Force of presence. Please. <laughs> nice. 21. Ooh, hell Ooh. yes. My goodness. That's a charisma save. Get bent. <laughs> With a single, unrecognizable word of defiance, you shatter the tether that keeps her here, a banishment of confidence. Her blade clangs and clatters to the ground, snapping in two. You think for a moment you saw a look of terror on her face. Busha, you are in a strange and comfortable place. 
the smell of fresh bread, the chatter of family, at a little table, the chair far too small for your frame. The sight of farmland outside the window, lush and vibrant, huge vines, nothing as dead and decayed as the dreams you saw recently. But then, the people at the table vanish in fear as the door busts open and living tendrils of dying vines twist inward, wrap around you, begin to choke you and pull you as a sacrifice to some old god sleeping below the farm. With the living, moving shape of the vines that are wrapped around me, I'm going to try to bend and slip with them. I'm going to try to use their strength against my damp, squishy frame and slip out of their grasp so I can race across the room and slam the door shut. I'm going to make a dexterity save. I love that. (laughs) Okay. You try to break free. Your natural lubrication, rarely (laughs) a weapon in your own favor. And parts of you do manage to slip out from behind the tight grasping vines, but not connected. You are sliced to pieces. You are flayed and gutted like a tuna (laughs) and consumed by the hungry sleeping God. This being is greater than you and you will always remember that. Gaspar, you are having an out-of-body experience, something you're used to. You've done this many times, jumping from one skull to the next, tasting new memories, learning to control vision and sight and smell from a different perspective. But this mind is the greatest you've ever touched. A massive, undulating black brain, a single cell, filled with corruption. And as you attempt to dominate the prion, it turns back and tries to take over you instead. How do you face this terror? Mm. This is a battle of the mind. It is a contest for control. From within this corrupted cell, signals are sent across the rest of the body. While the prion is trying to command the left side, I will command the right. We claim territory all along the body until finally there is no free space left. Then we must go to war. We struggle for what we find important. Memories, muscle control, the involuntary. One of us needs to breathe. The other doesn't. Gaspar stops what should not, for it will only make them weaker and allow my will to lord over theirs. That is 17 for an intelligence saving throw. There's rarely executed a sneak attack in the Battle of Wits, but you have found their weakness. You have tasted their essence, and you know where to strike. Not to be the stronger mind, but to be the surviving mind. Pentecos, you find yourself in a market, near Kinuit. Fay peddling wares of all kinds. Of course it is nighttime, and of course the moon is bright. You realize, as you stroll through the thoroughfare, 
the moon is a spotlight focused on you. You're alone in an alley. A tent falls from its poles, lying in the ground, and the silent, owl-like wings of a crystalline dragon descend from the sky. Your sister has found you once more, and surely she has brought the justice of Evdemonia with her. How do you face this terror? Penn's hand grips the handle of Zillow's. If her sister is the moon, how could she ever hope to face the sun? But she's always growing, Pen. And she's changed even since that moment in the market. She drops her sword, embraces the dragon, and says, I made a mistake. I'm so sorry, Rhea. I love you so much. And that is going to be a wisdom saving throw. Wonderful. Fourteen. The dragon reshapes into the frame of a deer-like fawn. Familiar to you, especially her scent. As your necks are side by side in a warm hug. But you hear a lingering whisper in a voice... Not unlike your own, but perhaps a different version of it. Some things cannot be forgiven as the teeth close around you. As the dragon's teeth crush Pentecost, she hugs tighter, and a tear runs down her face. Halifon, you are underground. That is the first thing you are aware of. You've been here for some time, and you've forgotten what the sunlight looks like. The smell of death has been following you since you got here. The gravel below your feet is just as much bone as it is earth. And in your journeys, you have passed countless corpses. Corpses of halflings. You're not sure how you know, but they were killed by greed. Suddenly, the earth falls out from underneath you. An illusory trap. Red eyes gleaming from the darkness, but you land on something hard, but softer than stone. A mound of gold. A sinister halfling in black armor looking down at you from a platform. Giggling. Gripping coins greedily. As the pile of gold comes to life. Two huge muscular arms of coin. Closing in to crush you. How do you face this terror? This wave of force crashing over Hal isn't one object. It's lots of little ones. And Hal knows, almost, no matter how hard somebody threw a coin at him, he could take having a coin thrown at him. All this is, is that. Over and over and over. As the wave comes down, he braces. And like a surfer, he ducks underneath and bursts through. I'd like to make a constitution save. Please do. Scrooge McDuckett. Scrooge McDuckett. <laughs> Took me a second to get the second layer on that one, but that was beautiful. <laughs> 17 plus 3 for a total of 20. This is not a foe you ever had to face. And with your radiant fire, the coins melt away into a harmless, 
metallic liquid. It's too bad the Fallow Crown didn't have you here. They might have fared better. Because you're Halifon Orison fucking Jr. <laughs> Wusha, you're awoken by the worst sound you can think of. The alarms of ship bells. You race to the deck, and there is no sea to greet you. Only the black void of space. Which is swiftly rended in two as a behemoth red eye peels back and a great divine magic washes out and the deck is flooded with an ivory tide. The tears of a god. How do you face this terror? A spear in each of my hands, my harpoons at the ready. Having this action that I already deeply regret come back to haunt me. I'm going to take each of my whaling implements and throw them up toward the eye. Using the chain attached to them, I'm going to try to pull the eye down and pierce it with one of the masts of the ship. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds like a strength save to me. Best for last. Come on, die. That's a cock die. That's some fucking Kratos shit right there. <laughs> yeah. exactly it's very much a timed press triangle. <laughs> Fuck. That is going to be a 14 again. You're certain if you were back on the water, the ship under your feet would be all the balance and confidence you need. But this space sailing is a silly thing. And these sky gods, when they try, they win. Another ship lost forever. Gaspar, you don't recognize the place where you are, but you know it's a battlefield. The bodies are not soldiers, they're heroes. People you've seen on Scry. Some above your position, some below. But some of the bodies you recognize are those of the Fallow Crown. One of which is your own. And one figure stands triumphant over the battlefield, wiping a short black blade on their sleeve, looking down as their arms ignite in black rings. And they look at you with a smile, having saved the weakest for last. How do you face the terror of Ophidian's victory? Well, Gaspar can be many things. Spite has an affinity for Gaspar, and he has an affinity for it as well. This insult will be Ophidian's downfall. Right after his hard-fought victory, he will taste an immediate, unexpected defeat. As he goes for the killing blow, Gaspar will be seemingly as weak as possible so that when Ophidian comes close to watch Gaspar's end, I am going to dexterously pull forth a hidden dagger, one procured from error, one that can end plurals. There is no opportunity to make the strike before Ophidian makes his. It is an acceptance that they will go down together. Mm. I would like to make a dexterity saving throw. I would love that. That is a 15. As you attempt to lift the dagger, a whip cracks down, disarming you. And as the blade pierces your eye, you don't see blood. You see flowers. 
<laughs> a sneak attack from Gaspar. Who could have seen that coming? The four of you are standing on a sigil, a platform in space, perhaps. But it feels like a cosmic Petri dish. A titanic figure hovers over you, looking down at you like toys. Chess pieces for them to move with their mind. A young boy with blonde hair and eldritch blue eyes. His power is overwhelming. Thought I'd check in. Say how you're doing. Hmm. Mate. In three. As a group, how do you overcome this terror? You will not attach a save to this. I just want a d20 roll, but a very brief description from each of you. Pentecost looks to the other three of you, no longer crying, and takes your hands. Hal on her left, Wusha on her right. Gaspar will complete the circle. If the game is decided in three moves, all we have to do is change the game. As the circle of hands is enclosed, you feel almost like there's a fifth, touching each of you, a gentle grip. Weak, struggling, but present. Gaspar lets go of Wusha's hand to free it. Wusha reaches in to his salt-crusted bag and pulls out a swollen deck of waterlogged sailor's cards and hands them to Hal. As Hal takes the cards, he gives Iavos's intangible hand a squeeze and says, Fella Crown, all together again. Sorry, mate, but the five of us together in this game of chess, we have a full house. All right, each of you roll me a d20 and tell me what you get. Oops. Each of us. Are we adding anything? Ooh, oh, baby, that's a big die. <sighs> Which one do I roll? Throw them at me. 17. 13. 17. 19. Mm, you beat the average. Hell That's yeah. very impressive. Everything falls away. Beyond the visions of terror that had haunted the shadows of Iavos's mind since waking up in Zenith lies a place where light once more exists. You are free from the weight of the nightmare shackles, and a voice fills the emptiness as the world begins to reform. The young girl. You made it out of there okay. That's good. He'll be glad. But you can't stop moving now. If he's anywhere, it's here. This was always his favorite place. At least, when I knew him. Things are about to get very strange. Even stranger than before. But I'll be with you this time. Well, sort of, anyway. It's time to get moving. And a wall rises up in front of you. A rough and soft red, as though it's bound in fabric. A long faded image embossed on it. The words are barely decipherable. You realize you stand before the cover of a giant book, large as a castle, casting its shadows over you. It reads The Amazing Adventurer Storybook. The pages part gently, just a narrow gap, but more than wide enough for your group. It beckons, the sound of fiddle music, the laughter of children. 
as you step carefully into the world of imagination. So, those weirdos were like his family? Or dream family, I guess? Apparently. And those spooky visions are his darkest memories? Uh, the recent ones, anyway. And that whole black and white smudgy world is like the shapes his mind makes? Like thoughts and stuff? Yes, basically, Dirk. And everyone's dreams look different? Well, based on the reports, yes. Why the sudden interest? I mean, this whole thing really spills my guts. A whole endless list of things to dream about, and I'm stuck. So much Orkbooker. You know, Dirk, I've been saying for some time now that therapy's good for everyone. It might help you understand yourself better. Are you kidding? If half the dreams are as scary as all those visions the FC just had to survive, I am happy with my one-track train brain. Suit yourself. What about you, Rusty? Or what about me? What do you dream about? What? Is it weird? Like a snake with boobs? Or a door that opens up to a room full of warm, damp trousers? Or a talking snake with warm, damp boobs? You can tell me. <clears throat> you know what, Dirk? If you really want to know, when I dream, it's also usually the same thing. Over and over. An empty throne. Sharpened iron blades. The song of the Evercore rattling the pillows. The taste of blood. Wow. That sounds dumb. But you've really made me feel better about my happy-go-lucky dream town. I always knew we had a lot in common, my fine rust about. Right. Right. Two peas in a pod. Two sides of a Two babes, lost in the dark, looking for home. Uh, okay, my turn. Uh, two slaps on the same ass. No. Uh, two fingers in the same nose. No. Uh, two scoops and a cone. Two, two eyes on the prize. Uh, uh, two in the pink. Two feet on the same ruler. Two, two lips, the same teeth. Imagination. Some fucking doozies. I'm so yeah. so proud of you all for taking such great creative direction with these. <laughs> just how do you overcome a fear? Right. You I gave love. us a lot to work with. Thank oh, you. I am also were, very happy with how they timed out. So okay. did the alignment. Was, so did Zach. Take, Zach gave us a lot to work with too for a, a season of moments. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I got to take a moment here. Uh, so my favorite moment of this game is the fact that y'all rolled your initiatives and it laid out so perfectly because uh, like, law gave me the sheet ahead of time to know what you guys were going to be facing. And it was fucking perfect. Like literally everything I would have asked each of you to face, you faced. And I just like... <laughs> yeah, that I, was I knew ridiculous. if I tried to force it, it wouldn't work. That, yeah, but that if was, I just let it happen, I knew it would work out. That was not scripted. Yeah, Law had an order that those were going to go in, which I believe was it's chronological. chronological order in the show yep. order. And, yeah. and it's funny. I um, when it when it got to the Kinuent part, I thought like, oh, the next encounter is going to be um the the Goldum. I thought I was going to get that one, so I was planning for it. And then as soon as you were describing the carnival, I'm like, wait. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only one kind of out of sequence was Ophidian just because he's such a come and go villain. Right. <clears throat> I figured he'd be second to last. It's I like, kind of a, I like that it was anywhere. Ophidian followed by Falric. That's that's good. Yeah. My my favorite moment was definitely when 
<laughs> uh, Gaspar decided to go like full Western movie and try to get the, the horse and wagon out of the way from the falling tree. Mm, oh, I, yeah. I liked that choice. I thought it was real good. <laughs> I like riddles. The, the dude, Your little uh, book puzzle is very perfect. It was exactly the level of difficulty that you would need in a tabletop game. Like <laughs> exactly right. It was. I was on the completely wrong track. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, totally. Especially for like a bunch of professional DMs. I figured like someone's going to get this. Yeah. Right. I, I wrote down the uh, the initials for the titles and I was trying to make words out of them. And just for everyone's <laughs> memory awesome. reference, yeah, I think you were all pretty close ones by the end of it, but goblins are one half, dryads are one, ogres are two, wraiths are five, vampires are 13, and demiliches are 18. At Outside first, of their layer. I thought it was going to be alphabetical. I was, and I I just was wondering. It out. Too. Yeah, I thought it might be alphabetical mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I was going to suggest that Wuxian number them and then we'd have a Dewey decimal system. <laughs> I, I thought you meant the Brothers Riddle. Oh, uh, no, the Brothers Riddle is also, like also a, really a pretty good. easy riddle. But yeah. I mean, also, if you if you think about it too much, it might get complicated and confusing. Yeah. I was super lost by that. Dana, you just fucking snatched that up so quick. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Uh, so far, there's no real maps out in play, uh, but we're going to be seeing some of that, I think, in a bit. Uh, I want to thank Sam Hediger, the editor, for editing this episode. But other than that, I think uh, I want to move on till next time. So we wish you luck. <laughs> <laughs>